the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, CERN scientists who make boson discovery that causes statues to come to life and sing Cockney tunes jailed under the Frankenstein laws. Adrift in space waiting for the solar winds to kick in. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a roundtable discussion on the weird Western anthology, Straight Out of Dodge City. Our own redoubtable consulting editor, David Afsharirod, conducts the talk, which includes Straight Out of Dodge City editor, David Boop, plus contributing writers, and hey, it's a superstar lineup for this one, Mercedes Lackey, Joe R. Lansdale, and Jonathan Mayberry. So that is coming up. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We have new fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com front page right now. We usually put up a story or a piece to give you a taste of the world of an upcoming book or generally just to provide interesting and cool reading. And both, of course. Now up at Bain.com is Adrift by Frank Chadwick. This is a story set in the world of Frank's upcoming science fiction novel, Ship of Destiny. Alien Intrigue Marissa Marfoglia was the only human and only female governor of Simkitrak Transtellar, the largest manufacturer of interstellar jump drives in the Kodohas, which is the world that Frank writes in, a position she held only because she was fiscal guardian of a Viroki minor. Those are one of the alien races of the Kodahas. The rest of the Board of Governors, of course, wants her gone. The slightest misstep, and she could put the well-being of her family in grave danger. So when her sister Aurora shows up with another dangerous scheme, Mar is ready to dismiss her yet again, but something about the way Aurora is acting makes Mar think maybe there's something to her sister's plan this time. Anyway, it won't hurt to listen and find out, or will it? Also up now at the Bain.com website is a great nonfiction piece by Les Johnson that is called Beamed Energy for Space Exploration, Giant Leap or Incremental Steps, Sailing Through on a Beam of Light. Space exploration is all about giant leaps, and with more and more private sector money being poured into spaceflight, it may be that the 21st century will propel humankind ever closer to the science-fictional dreams of spreading out among the stars. One such endeavor is Starshot, an initiative of breakthrough initiatives. It aims to propel a spacecraft farther and faster than ever before through the use of beamed energy and reflective sails. In this month's nonfiction essay, space scientist Les Johnson explores the possibilities of this cutting-edge technology. Beamed Energy for Space Exploration, Giant Leap or Incremental Steps by Les Johnson and Adrift by Frank Chadwick are now available for your reading pleasure, all for free at Bain.com. And after March 15th, they will be included in two great free 
ebook anthologies that you can download at Bain.com forever, perpetually, um, in all our many formats as well. These anthologies are called Free Stories 2020 and Free Nonfiction 2020. So, so get to the website or get the anthology ebooks and happy reading. Hey everybody, or perhaps I should say howdy partners, David Afshirod here. I'm happy to be back on the Bain Free Radio Hour, where this week we are talking about weird westerns, things that go bump at high noon. First there was straight out of Tombstone, then straight out of Deadwood, and now the weird and wild wild west rides again with straight out of Dodge City, an all new anthology of weird western stories available now in trade paperback and all ebook formats. Joining me today to talk about the book is Mercedes Lackey. She has over 135 titles in print, with four being published last year alone, and some of her foreign language editions can be found in Russian, German, Czech, Polish, French, Italian, Turkish, and Japanese. She has written and published books in many, many series, some of which I'm sure Bain readers will be familiar with, if not all of them, including The Secret World Chronicles, Hunter, Valdemar, Elemental Masters, Serrated Edge, Elven Bane, and Obsidian Mountain. Misty Lackey, thank you so much for coming on the Bane Free Radio Hour. Ye, as they say, ha. <laughs> also joining us is Joe R. Lansdale. He is the author of over 40 novels and 400 shorter works. His work has been made into films Bubba Hotep and Cold in July, as well as the acclaimed Sundance TV show Hap and Leonard. He's received numerous recognitions for his work, among them The Edgar, The Spur, as well as 10 Bram Stokers. He's also received the Grand Master Award and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association. He's been inducted into the Texas Literary Hall of Fame and is writer-in-residence at Stephen F. Austin State University. Uh, Joe Lansdale, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jen. It's actually 50 novels, uh, but who's counting, right? I was gonna, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna make a joke that you'd probably written more since I looked up that bio, and I guess I should have, uh, if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I got, I got a film coming out. They're starting to film, uh, my, mo- my movie The Thicket next month with Peter, Peter Dinklage. Oh, I think I saw you post about that on Facebook, yeah. Um, that's a western, right? Maybe we'll we can talk about that a little bit. Um, that's why I mentioned it. You guys are also prolific. I imagine you're probably still writing novels while we're doing this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, also maybe writing a novel while we talk is Jonathan Mayberry. He's a New York Times best-selling author, five-time Bram Stoker Award winner, and a comic book writer. His Vampire Apocalypse book series, V-Wars, is in production uh, as a Netflix original series. His works include the Joe Ledger thrillers, the Rot and Ruin series, and the Dead of Night series. He's editor of many high-profile anthologies as well. He is a board member of the Horror Writers Association and the president of the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Jonathan Mayberry, thank you and welcome to the Bain Podcast. Uh, thanks uh, for having me here. And like Joe, I have an update on my bio. Uh, the V War show right. actually, uh, was released in December, and uh, we're we're oh, now okay. keeping yeah. our fingers crossed for that second season pickup. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, I've got 
I've got two little uh, kids at home, so I get to, I know all about like uh, you know Ducktales, but not so much the other stuff that's on Netflix. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. V Wars is not uh, kid friendly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have to watch it when they're in bed or something. Uh, all right, and finally, the sheriff round these parts, the man who wrestled up the posse, Mr. David Boop, the editor of Straight Out of Dodge City, as well as the other anthologies in the series. Mention those. Those are straight out of Tombstone and straight out of Deadwood. He's a Denver-based speculative fiction author and editor. His debut novel, the sci-fi noir She Murdered Me with Science, returned to print in 2017 from Wordfire Press. His second novel, The Soul Changers, is a serialized Victorian horror novel set in Pinnacle Entertainment's World of Rippers Resur- ah, World of Rippers Resurrected. It's almost a tongue twister. He is a prolific short story writer and game designer as well. David Boop, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much. It's always a, a pleasure. And I have an update that Ripper's Resurrected novel, which was available only online, should be available in print hopefully by the end of this year. So uh, I'm very excited right. to have my second novel in print as well as being my first full media tie-in novel. So it's, it's great. All right. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. Um, Like I mentioned, we are here to talk about Weird Western, specifically straight out of Dodge City, which is out now from Bain Books in trade paper and ebook format. Um, But I want to talk about, I know as writers and uh, even as editors and people in publishing, sometimes we bristle against too fine a genre definitions. And you start sounding like those guys talking about post-punk, hardcore, metal you know, these little tiny micro genres of music. But um, I did want to talk for people who maybe haven't heard about weird westerns or say, what in the world is that? Um, just maybe going around and David Boop, let's end with you since you are uh, the man at the stick on this. Um, but what what does weird western mean to, to you all when you hear that term? And, and how would you describe it to readers? Dude, the original Wild Wild West TV show. Yes. That's it, right there. Covers it all. <laughs> well, you, you know, there's those the uh, dime novels though too that were done back at the uh, late in the 1800s, early 1900s. They had Jesse James and the steam-powered horses, and I found some of those things actually in in uh, as library books that had been uh, you know bound and put together. So those were like from way back. And then Robert E. Howard was writing Weird Westerns. And, of course, that primed me for the Wild Wild West. That did it. And so I, I, I think there's been a, so much of that, but it's always been scattered. And when I wrote a novel called Dead in the West, and uh, I actually wrote it in 1980. It was published, serialized in 1985 and put into a novel form in 1986. It was optioned numerous times and sold and was never made into a film. But when I did that, that was a genre that there, it just wasn't out there. And not that there hadn't been a few here and there, and of course stuff in the past, but I've been really excited to see it really catch on in more recent times. It's certainly not as big a market as some people would like to think it is, but it's certainly a far bigger market than it once was. Yeah, and, and Weird West I mean, has a, it, it isn't just gunslinger fiction. It's stuff set in that, that era, you know, the, the, the less industrialized version of America. I mean, you have you have stuff like uh, Circus of Doctor Lau by, by Charles Finney that set the old west 
technically a weird west. Yes. Very weird west. And that was in the Grimes, 34 or 5, I think. And, um, you know, there were stories in, uh, by, you know, Robert E. Howard, you mentioned, in, in a bunch of uh, books. And uh, you have, um, oh, God, just about everyone's taken a swing at it at one time or another. All the, You know, from, from back then all the way to Stephen King's The, the Dark Tower series is, is, is a weird West, you know, structure. Yeah. Even William Burroughs. And I'm sure Mark Twain must have messed with that. Um, yeah. Or Ambrose Beers. Yeah, and Lou the Moore with, with uh, The Haunted Mason, you know, had had some, some yep. theory elements. That's right. It doesn't actually have to be science fiction or, or horror. It just has to be weird. And weird's a pretty nice, broad umbrella. Well, yeah. For, for <laughs> the well, you remember remember all of the, the uh, weird westerns in the uh, was late 50s, early 60s, something like, uh, you know, Jesse James' daughter meets Frankenstein or something like that. Billy the Kid meets Dracula. Yeah. Uh, and, and my yeah. favorite, uh, Curse of the yeah. Undead. Yeah, Valley of the Guanji with uh, Cowboys yeah, and yeah. Dinosaurs. Um, you've got uh, um, Billy the Kid versus Vampire uh, versus Dracula, and then uh, Jesse James versus Dracula's daughter. Um, yeah. And then we yeah. go into TV series. Um, there was, I remember there's an episode of Bonanza where Haas is imagining leprechauns. Um, I mean, that had to be in the early 50s. Uh, there's there's a ton of stuff. Tremors, the Tremor series, you know, is Weird West. Um, yeah. Why well, the Hangman didn't last long. They they made a movie called the. I'm sorry, my bad. No, okay. I said they made a movie called The Hangman with Stephen Forrest that was on TV for a while. It's a guy that's hung, comes back to life, and becomes an Avenger. That's right. God, I haven't thought about that in years. Plus, there's a good well, high, in high, high Plains Drifter certainly qualifies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were a lot of uh, Twilight Zone episodes that took place in the Old West. There's the one with uh, Martin yep. Landau, um, and he's uh, they're you know, they're gunslingers. There's that George Clayton Johnson, the execution where uh, uh, Albert Salmi is is being hung, and as he's hanging there, the actually Russell Johnson, the guy who played the professor, I think was the actor, you know, brought someone randomly back forward in time to the to the current era yeah. at that time, you know, nineteen sixty. Mm-hmm. Um so they did it a lot as well. Now that you know Yeah. Well yeah. There, they had that one with Lee Marvin, which was good. Yeah. yeah. There's a great anthology series about Canada. There's great anthology series out of Canada called uh, Dead Man's yeah. Son. Briscoe County uh, Junior. Yeah. Yes, and we, we could literally go on and on because there's such a, a rich legacy of Weird West stories. I mean, I came into Weird West from comic books, from some weird stories in Phantom Rider and Rawhide Kid and Jonah Hex. Um, there, there's, it's it's an area that just lends itself to any kind of bizarre storytelling and filmmaking. Right. Well, I, I wrote well, Jonah uh, Hex comics, and as well as I wrote a Jonah Hex story for Batman the Animated Series. And I wrote a short mm-hmm. Jonah Hex piece for them. So I've always been attracted to Jonah Hex as well as, uh, you know, just weird westerns in general. Uh, Dave, David Boop, uh, since you're, you are the editor of this, um, when you, I mean, I know Tony Weiskopf knows what weird westerns are, but when you pitched this to her um, or when you were coming up with this idea and you were approaching authors, um, 
kind of what what guidelines did you give them within this really really broad weird west or did you not did you say hey you define it the way you want to define it and write me a story so the 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 one guideline the one caveat that had to be in every single story was at least part of the story had to take place in the old west it didn't matter whether it was in the future or or contemporary or whatever through the majority of the story, there had to be a, at least a flashback, a connection to the old West at some point. Um, that was the only caveat that I had. After that, it was pretty much up to whatever they could imagine. Um, so as far as that goes, um, you know, I wanted to see a, a variety of interpretations of what the old West was, I didn't want cliche. I didn't. If, if you're going to play with a trope, if you're going to play with a trope, then give me a twist on that trope, and and so forth. And everybody did an amazing job. I mean, you know, they, they run the gambit of of stories with, you know, heroes victorious, heroes losing. Um, you know, they have fantasy, horror, science fiction. A mystery. There's a little bit of everything uh, within the three anthologies, and the great thing is this: this last one, Dodge uh, Dodge City, really kind of the caveat in it. You know, with uh, with uh, Jonathan's story um, uh, at the end, it, it's like it, it puts a, a point that this is. The, the the weird West as as fun enjoys and you know it was it was it was so much fun to do. As far as approaching the authors, um, everybody I approached in a different way. Um, for example, uh, Butcher uh, for Tombstone, I got him when I asked him if any of his Dresden characters had been around in the Old West, and he said yeah. And I said, got an origin story. And he said, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I'd love to do that. And uh, as far as Jeff goes, well, I jilted into it for a period of, a, what is it, about three, four years now, Joe, I've been on you? Yeah. <laughs> we, did yeah. A, we did a panel, <laughs> uh, a world famous in San Antonio um, and, on Weird Westerns. And afterwards, I said, I'm putting together an anthology. And he said, oh. And I said, Can I, you know, you are like, you know, one of the premier weird western, if not one of the kings of the field, can I get a story for you? And he said, sure. And then a couple of years later, when I when I actually reached out to him, he's like, we're filming Happen and Leonard right now. Catch me on the next one. It, which I did, and then haunted him mercilessly, guilted him into giving me a story. So, you know, every, 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 every approach was different. We kind of talked about this a little bit just when we were talking about defining the genre. Um, but um, I remember we did a podcast, um, David Boop and I, and, and some of the other contributors for the first book in this series. And um, I should have done my research and gone back and listened to it to tell you the exact author. But um, we were talking about how does it differ writing a weird Western or just a straight Western and, and uh, something else. And he was saying, you know, in many ways, the Old West is a fantasy setting. You know, in a lot of ways, that didn't exist the way we think it did. And 
anymore, especially people don't have a connection. You know, you have to, in a way, do an, a, a bit of world building the way you do with a, a, any sort of science fiction or fantasy. Um, and uh, I just wonder what it is about this period and the fantasy of this period, the idea of this period. Why do you all think you are drawn to it, continue to be drawn to it? And, and readers, you know, like Joe was saying, maybe not even uh, are still drawn to it in the fact of weird westerns are kind of even being more and more drawn to it than they have been in the past and i just wonder if you got all um could talk a little bit about the appeal of it what, what you think the appeal is well I, I think part of the appeal is the fact that literally anything can happen uh there was so much poorly documented about the old west the art you know i think joe started to mention that our version of the old west that we see uh, on tvs and, and movies doesn't really resemble the way the west was so it's become a fantasy setting. It is no longer actually an historical setting. And that allows you know, us so much creative uh, room to tell any kind of story and for readers to expect things you know, out of the ordinary, uh, beyond their experience, and so on. Yeah, you know, what I always think in most of the ones I've done is I really want it to be like what, what history we have of the Old West. And what we know about it, and then I want to interject the outlandish or the weird aspects. But uh, I, I try not to. I try to, to avoid, at least purposely, making it anachronistic. You know, I, uh, I try to put things in context. Uh, now, I've, and part of that is that I've been a fan of westerns for a long, long time. I read western history long before I became interested in western novels, and uh, I watched western films growing up. So it's always been there. And I think probably the truth is I don't really have a favorite genre, but the westerns come close. I've written maybe three uh, straight west, well, two straight western novels, The Magic Wagon and The uh, Dead in the West, and bunches of short stories. And every time I do, I feel like I'm tapping into something that's very natural to me because of when I grew up. Because in the fifties, uh, westerns were really, really big and. 60s, early 60s, middle 60s, every channel had westerns. You could turn it on to be two or three of them right behind each other. And I think that lately, although they burned everybody out for a while, I think that people are starting to look at them fresh. And I think they're also starting to look at the western genre in a fresher, more unique manner. Yeah. Yeah. Misty Lackey, do you have any thoughts on that? What uh, the the enduring appeal of the western and 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 how it is in in a way a fantasy setting or or no? Oh, it absolutely is a fantasy setting, and that's largely because when uh, movie making moved out to California, they were trying to churn stuff out as cheap as they could, and they essentially invented the wild west as we know it because. Mm-hmm. It was cheap to put together. They had the set right out there, out their backyard. Uh, all they had to do was grab some hats and guns and put them on people, and boom, the, the, the Western craze was invented, more or less. Yeah, you know, they could, they could, you they could grab that... plots from the old dime novels right. that they wouldn't have to pay writers for. Uh, <laughs> so it was it was basically uh, 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 already fantasy. Yeah, and you know something else though that's, that's weird about that that was always fantasy. But when they were making that, uh, 
when they first started making the westerns, people like White Earp were still alive, and Bat Masterson, yeah. and Annie Oakley, and Buffalo Bill like, was died just maybe just before that. He died in 1917. But I mean, these things were either close within time, or they were, the, the people that were part of the western legends were still alive, and so they were borrowing a lot of things from a reality and then mixing it with this sometimes absurd fantasy. But the weird thing is they used to, I'd watch the Roy Rogers television shows, and, you know, you would have them going out to riding horses, and then somebody would show up in a Jeep or a plane. Uh, they would stop at a bank robbery and make a phone call. But, uh, you know, a lot of that really wasn't inaccurate altogether because the Old West didn't just die in 1900. Like, my father was born in 1909, and when he was a boy, they still rode horses. He told me the first time he ever saw a plane. You know, and and cars, of course, were coming in, and that got to be the thing. But they've still rode horses when he was a boy and still used wagons and things like that. And when I was a kid living in East Texas, uh, you know, you'd have many people who still still had mule-drawn or horse-drawn wagons because that's how they worked their fields with their plow. they take them out there, they put the mules up and plow. And even I used to plow with a mule. So what's really weird about this is to realize that it's not that far away. And when I was growing up, it was even closer. And when my father was growing up, he only missed the closing of the West by nine years until Mark Twain was alive. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of, one of my favorite... Yeah. I just want to throw something in on that real quick. One of my favorite lines that, that, that kind of uh, defines that whole era is, is the line from Liberty Valance. When the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Yep. And you know, they, sometimes the mundane details of, of life in the Old West aren't as, as interesting as the stories that we want to tell. So even the people like, like, like Doc Holliday and, and I'm sorry, like Bat Masterton and, and uh, the Earps, they, they contributed to their own, uh, the fiction of their own careers yeah. because it made them more interesting. And they profited from it, I, I, I imagine. Yeah. And it became more fantastic, more fun. Well, yeah, it's like Wild Bill Hickok had a, a shootout of the station uh, early on where he probably hid behind a curtain and dropped this guy. And then by the time it was in, you know, his supposedly the biography of his life, it was him killing all these people in hand-to-hand combat <laughs> and all of that. But that was also, that's part of, the, part of what I grew up with as a child was in East Texas. You, you, you could tell, you told the truth, but you also could tell stories. And when you told stories, people sort of knew that you were embellishing them. That was just part of the tradition. So if it was, um, you know, something that you were describing, you would use hyperbole or you would use these outstanding similes or, or some sort of metaphorical approach to telling the story to make it seem more hot and alive. And you might even been telling, for the most part, the truth, but the truth had a lot of dressing on it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's not that far of a stretch to go from, it's not that far of a stretch to go from, uh, you know, uh, you encounter a bear in the woods to I encountered a dragon in the woods in the old west. It's it's real easy to embellish that um, because everybody's heard bear stories and, you know, but you start, you know, adding a level to it each time. You're leveling up the story each time you tell it, um, and that's where the magic comes in. Um, you know, all of these stories that are in these palaces, especially uh, straight out of Dodge City, you know, you 
see a real story behind the fantasy story. Um, there could have been logical explanations for a lot of these stories. But the great thing about it is that the authors take us someplace where he has fantasy horror uh, readers, science fiction readers, to go. You want to believe that there were dragons in the Old West. We want to believe that uh, voodoo trains show up and werewolves were around and all, all of that. So yeah, we want to believe that, and it's not that hard to go from what really happened to the amazing. What, are you trying to say that werewolves aren't real? There's a question here, man. One thing I wanted to talk about, I think, Jonathan, you said, um, you know, re-examining some of this stuff and looking at it from a way that maybe we haven't seen. Um, and I think you've, you know, I mean, starting even back with the spaghetti westerns, you, you started to see this... Um, uh, not de- it's not dismantling, not de- deconstruction, but sort of looking at the myth of the West in a different way. And and I think you know when we were talking about the Hollywood cowboys, you know, I thought of that. If you've seen it, I know Joe has because we've talked about it. But Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the first segment of that is sort of dealing with the the reality of the old West versus the 1930s singing cowboy kind of version of it. But one thing too that stood out to me when I was reading the stories. Um, especially, you know, uh, you three stories in here is that um, these these stories all involve non-white characters to some degree, and um, native whether Native Americans or African Americans. Um, and we talked a little bit about this with Straight Out of Tombstone, uh, and I've talked with David Boop just you know offhand at Dragon Con and things about this and this sort of including of the wider swath of the population that lived in this country uh, and continue to, but lived during this period, um, besides, you know, sort of like the, the white lawman or the white outlaw. Not that there aren't plenty of stories of those two types to tell, but um, I wonder when you all were writing your stories, was that something you were consciously trying to do or did, you know, include these, these other perspectives or did that just, that was the story that grabbed you at the time? And Dave, maybe talk about wanting to include these stories. Right. I've always been interested in the black uh, experience in the West. And in fact, I wrote a book called Paradise Sky that I'd researched and tried to write for 30 years. And when I first tried to write it, they said, well, black people don't read and white people don't want to read about black people. And I thought, well, I'm not buying that. And so then I tried it again in the 1990s and they had they were a little bit more politically correct. They said, we don't know who our audience is. And then in uh, recent years, I, I, my, my publisher now, Mulholland Little Brown, they liked it, and I wrote it, and uh, got you know it's one of my I think it's my best book. Everybody has their own difference. It's kind of a historical, it's kind of a western, but it's also um, humorous, and it takes all of these different black characters that I had read about, and and I put their experience into it. And when I was growing up, I lived in the South during uh, Jim Crow. And so I saw a lot of that going on on a daily basis. And so those characters for me were the characters I saw, many of them that I knew, 
and they just became part of my storytelling process because some of the stories that I got as a kid were told to me by the old black men sitting around at the feed store when I would go up there and they'd get used to me coming there and, and I would sit down on the stoops and listen to them talk. And, uh, and after they got used to me, they began to be more free about telling their story. And my dad and uh, all of my people, they had all those old Western tales too. So the idea of including um, people that were before sort of like ignored, you know, it's not a matter of just saying I'm going to put black people in the West. Black people were in the West, and they influenced it from the Buffalo Soldiers to the marshals that Hanging Judge Parker had, uh, people like Bass Reeves, who may have been the influence of the Lone Ranger. I think that may be stretching it a bit, but I like that idea. He certainly could have could have been. And all of those characters have fascinated me all of my life. And Jim Crow was one of those things that was just like a scar on our country, you know. And so that, that impacted me to where I've written straight novels about black characters and different kinds of characters and white characters, of course, as well, because these are the people that I grew up around. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they can tell their own stories better than I can tell them. But in some ways, their stories are part of me, too. And my perspective on that is maybe my perspective, but it's, it's what I've got. So it's always been fascinating to me to look at it from the standpoint of other people um, and how their experiences were different from mine and how we influenced each other. Yeah, I have a, a real uh, weird path into this. I, I grew up in, a, in a, an extremely racist household, extremely racist neighborhood. My father ran the local chapter of the Klan. So, I mean, it was a, a pretty rough environment to go in, to grow up into. And I went up, you know, once I started breaking away from that, you know, skewed mindset, I started reading about, you know, history of, you know, America as it really was. Um, and, you know, I found, you know, I was reading a, a, about, you know, Bass Reeves and other, other uh, folks in the Old West. There was a huge mm-hmm. population of, of, of blacks. Uh, of uh, uh, Hispanic yeah. in in the cowboy era, I mean, God, I mean, ha- half the country was owned by Spain. Of course, there are people of color all over the goddamn country, and that that brings in a rich cultural diversity that was literally whitewashed by Hollywood. And um, that's what I like yeah, every every third or fourth cowboy was was uh, black or brown. Yeah, exactly. And uh, to to not address that, and also there were a lot of, of you know, Native Americans and mixed breeds of, of various types back then that were part. You know, some yep. some were mixed and living among Native Americans. Some were mixed and living among uh, essentially the, the the white population. So when I picked my character, I, I picked a, a, a character of mixed race, and you know that was not it's not stunt casting. That's the old west. The old west was probably yeah. one of the most significant melting pots. Um, in, in, in all of America. Yeah, and sort of ironic then that we don't, in the past we haven't thought of it that way. Uh, Misty Lackey, you um, live in Oklahoma, which my perspective in Texas, um, you know, has always been, um, you know, <laughs> sometimes other people feel nice. I always liked Oklahoma every time I've been there, but don't tell anyone in Texas I said that. Um, but uh, Hey, I'm from Texas. I, know, I heard it. I, I heard you say it. <laughs> oh no, this is going to wrap me out. Anyways, uh, but yeah, uh, Oklahoma is know, just northern my, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the, you, you there's a different um relationship to uh Native American with the history up there of 
you know, the reservations and whatnot. And you, t your story is about the land rush, essentially. And um, I just wondered if you had some thoughts on this and maybe where you live, giving you a, a point of view um, that maybe in, in we, I don't know. There, there's my question, I guess, kind of muddled. <laughs> well, when I moved here, uh, Oklahoma was one of the last places in this swath of the country that was essentially stolen twice from the natives. Uh, the First Nations people, a lot of them ended up getting dumped here, especially the Cherokee, uh, because nobody, no white person wanted the land, and then all of a sudden the white people wanted the land, and, and here, comes the, here comes the land rush. Land rushes, there were actually several of them. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by that when I moved here. And uh, I've been uh, privileged to know a, quite a few of the Osage elders out here. And the Osage actually uh, are one of the few First Nations people that lived in this part of in the part of Oklahoma where I live. And I did a lot of research on them when I was doing a book called Sacred Ground. And I thought it would be kind of fascinating if they were, if I just sort of uh, combined the Osage in religion in with my own elemental masters stuff and designated them as a kind of elemental master. So uh, that's what I did with it, and I used and I used one of their main deities, Grandmother Spider, as uh, you probably noticed. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, spiders, for most people, yeah. are inherently creepy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, and David Boop, um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts in putting this together um, about that, including different points of view, because you did it, whether you meant to or not. <laughs> so I'm just wondering about that. <laughs> so... You know, my my thought has always been, you know, sell them on the reality before you sell them on the fantasy. Sort of, sort of like what Joe was saying earlier. And for me, doing research on the Old West, uh, you find that until the end of the Civil War, you have more uh, women, blacks, uh, Hispanics, in, and Native Americans than you do like Anglo-Saxon white males in the West. Um, and in a lot of, let's say, free uh, slaves uh, or escaped slaves came west. There was, a, there was a whole towns founded by Mexicans coming up over the border. Uh, women ran towns. Uh, usually, if you were a brothel owner, whether you, you know, was what were officially running the town or not, you were really running the town. And so to look at the old West, what we what we did in film and television for so long with the whitewashing and so forth, I said, you know, we can't tell that old West. We need to tell the real old West. So I, I kept it very open. Um I did not pick like I did not go down a list and pick stories to make sure that I had an Asian, a Native American, you know, and stuff like that. Um, what I did was yeah. I wanted to make sure that I explored uh, many points of view. And um, luckily, you know, I've gotten 
such amazing authors, uh, many who have been previously published uh, doing weird westerns, but like semi-pro, and a lot of them aren't known in the pro market, uh, but I gave them an opportunity to uh, explore their characters. So in that regard, um, I wanted to make sure that the whole West was explored. And it's difficult because, you know, a lot of steampunk and weird Western is um, uh, what they call uh, uh, revisionist past or retro futurism or things like that where uh, we have everybody's enlightened and every... Uh, encounter with a Native American or or other is a enlightened experience. Like the heroes were always the one person who um, who knew that everything that was going on was wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's not always the case. And and what I like about what everybody did is there are no easy, comfortable answers to anything. Nothing is is glossed over. Um, things are are very real. They're very brutal at times. And I love that. I love looking at the uncomfortableness of that time period. But also, I love the chance for people to evolve and grow and to be better. Uh, and everybody just gave me such amazing stories, regardless of point of view. All the characters are true to themselves, and and I love that. Yeah, um, you also have a kind of an interesting story in here. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting story, and it's an interesting story because we see your story, um, the Ragdoll Kid, or. Uh, you can give me the full title in a second, but the murder um, of the ragdoll kid, the murder of the ragdoll kid, which was is a revised version of basically the story that for you kicked this off. You didn't set out to edit three weird western anthologies for Bane um, initially. No, you know, I did you not. Kinda, you, and, and you might want to tell just briefly, and then um, unfortunately we're going to probably have to wrap this up here in a second. But I just I, I liked in your introduction you talked about um, how you got pulled into this sort of inadvertently. And um, so if you want to talk about that and just and just mention your story and how that plays into the story of that wound up with three three weird Western anthologies from Bain that you edited. <laughs> and about 60 uh, pieces of short fiction out there. Uh, yeah, yeah, not all just, in the yeah. same world. <laughs> so, um, so The Ragdoll Kid um, was a story I submitted to the Tony Hellerman's Mystery Western Writing Contest uh, that he used to put on for his writer's conference. And the idea was it had to be a mystery and it had to be set in the Old West. So I wrote this story being of, you know, because I, I originally thought I was going to be a mystery writer. I did not know I was going to be a science fiction fantasy writer. I thought I was going to write mystery. And, um, and so I wrote this story where uh, an outlaw is, you know, long after his, his time has been murdered, and his ghost has to solve his own murder. And so I wrote it, I set it in this fictional town called Drowned Horse, Arizona, that may resemble a little bit of the town I'm sitting in now, 
but that's purely coincidental. Um, the fact that I spent two years in the town should not be equated to the fact that I wrote the town as a damned place. Um, but but I, I came up with this idea of a cursed town in the Old West, and um, when I, the story was published by David Lee Summers, who had a story in Straight Out of Tombstone, um, in his magazine, uh, Tales of the Talisman, which is now defunct. Um, but when that got published, um, David Riley, who does Science Fiction Trails magazine, um, liked the story so much he asked me to write a story for his magazine, which I did. And then next thing I know, I'm getting invites to enter Western anthologies and so forth. So over a period of time, this non-weird Western, you know, it was a mystery, turned out to be uh, the catalyst for me exploring deeper into the uh, weird Western and Western genres, as it were, to tell those stories that have yet to be told. So when it came down to doing an anthology, again, quite by accident, I was on a panel with, with Jim Butcher, and, and I was trying to find something to talk about afterwards, and I just basically said, you know, what I had said earlier, the character in the Old West, and he said, yeah. I said, well, I'm doing an anthology. And next thing I know, he get, he says, yeah, I'll give you a story, so now I have to put an anthology together. And three <laughs> anthologies later, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Tony's been very gracious uh, with uh, allowing me this chance to, to explore this genre in a way that uh, has not really been done before. In, in a lot of cases, these are other people's worlds where they've written a uh, weird Western uh, in a non in a in a book series that is not necessarily in the West, and to take some of those well-known characters and put them in the Old West has been fascinating and fun to see the possibilities, and it's just been a great experience. And working with the uh, the three uh, absolutely masters that are on the uh, phone here with me. It's been great. It, and it's also been easy as an editor because they're all amazing writers and I haven't had to edit them all that much. So um, I, pick, <laughs> I pick the people for the anthology very carefully because I don't like to work hard. So <laughs> everybody just gave me just great stories and it was, it was a wonderful experience. Well, um, I actually had some more questions, but I think we answered them all kind of in the, in the, uh, um, course of ask, answer, asking other things and talking about other things. So um, I just want to close with, if you if you guys would all, um, you can plug your own stuff if you want, but if you want to just give me, um, give the listeners, uh, besides all the straight out of Dodge, straight out of Tombstone, straight out of Deadwood uh, stuff, you know, if someone picks up this book and they think, I want more of this, um, where would you suggest they look next? What's a favorite uh, book or movie or or television series. I know we mentioned a lot of them early on, so we may be treading over the same ground again. But well, I'd like to plug something that's both mine and someone else's. Um, I, I I was asked to do a, a novel in, uh, based on the Deadlands uh, role playing game, which is steampunk alt history supernatural western. So it's a little bit of everything. And I, I did a book for that series, and then uh, uh, Jeff Marriott did one. And Shonen McGuire did one, and, and they, their books are just absolutely fantastic. Very weird. Yeah, in, in, uh, straight out of, 
that in Straight Out of Deadwood, Shane Hensley wrote a Deadlands story and gave it to yep. Shane Owens Deadlands, and and he uh, he gave us a story in Deadlands too. So yes, very much. Uh, if you like the story in Deadlands, you know, like you know mm-hmm. John's work, definitely check out that uh, uh, those books, uh, the yeah. Deadlands novels. And Jonathan, did you say the did you say the title of it? Yeah, mine is called Ghost Walkers. Uh, it's Ghost Walkers. Ghost Walkers. Uh, Jeff Marriott's is Thunder Moon Rising, and Seanan's is Boneyard. All right, very good. Uh, Misty Lackey, what about you? What uh, anything you've done or others have done that you think would be a good um, after the gateway drug of straight out of Dodge City, uh, something to check out some weird westerns or something similar? Well, not necessarily weird western, but uh, most people don't know that the great Ray Lafferty wrote a wonderful novel about uh, First Nations people in Oklahoma here called Oklahonally, and it's available from the University of Oklahoma Press, I believe. All right, we'll go get a copy of that. Yeah, he mostly wrote short stories in that. that. Yeah, it was unique. Okay. And Joe, what about you? Uh, I know we we talked about you got the the thicket coming out as a movie in, in Paradise Sky of yours, and you've written many many others. But anything else of yours or anyone else's? Well, the thicket is not necessarily a weird western, but it, you, you know, in the book, it has a, um, a a dwarf, a little person that's in it, and uh, uh, and of course, uh, Dinklage liked the book a lot, and and he picked it up. And uh, but it's not really a weird book so much as it deals with characters that aren't normally dealt with in the West, you know. And it has a number okay. of interesting characters that I think that are often ignored in in Western fiction. But I have a book coming out called Jane Goes North, which is about a road novel between two women heading from uh, East Texas up to Boston, and uh, it's about how they get along or don't get along on that trip. It's a straight novel, and then I have uh, more better deals coming out from Little Brown, uh, which is a, a crime novel, and uh, right now it's The Sky Done Rip, which is a fantasy novel from uh, Subterranean. Oh, and then All there's right. a Happen Leonard collection called of Mike and Minestrone short stories about when they were young. You want my recommendations, too? Yeah, oh yeah, David Boop, of course. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> not, not forgot you, I forgot where we were in the, in the when we're when we're talking on the phone, I don't have a visual. Yeah, David Boop, you you uh, give us your your uh, your thoughts. <laughs> well, well, conveniently enough, the um the story that's in uh Straight Out of Dodge City is in my Drowned Horse Chronicle, which is a um uh continuing series of short stories set in this cursed town of Drowned Horse, Arizona. And uh, recently, you as editor uh, bought a uh, Drowned Horse story for the Chronicles of David. Uh, so that just recently came out from Bain. Uh, so if you like uh, Drowned Horse, you can find another one immediately in Chronicles of David. But these are um, the, the Drowned Horse Chronicle is scattered in many anthologies and magazines over a period of about 10 years now. Uh, but I am working on the first collection, and I'm hoping to have the first collection out uh, within a year or so. Um, uh, there's three arcs, and I'm going to do the first arc, the early years of Drowned Horse, and, uh, and then go from there. So, yeah, and as far as recommendations, I gave... 
three anthologies of recommendations. Every one of the authors in there have amazing novels, have amazing other short fiction. Uh, they've all earned uh, the right to be there by years and years of just amazing story after amazing story after amazing story. Uh, and so I recommend anybody in the three uh, anthologies, uh, especially everything that uh, my three colleagues here on the podcast with have written, um, I am honored. I truly was honored by their stories um, and their willingness to be in here as, as well as everybody else. It's humbling to work with such amazing talent, and it's helped you know, even me as an editor, boost up my writing. And uh, so I thank you guys all and everybody who's been in any of the anthologies. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, and we, and we want to thank you. Yeah, and we want to thank you for uh, being on the Bain Free Radio Hour here. Um, it's been great talking with everybody. Um, and we really appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, the, the anthology, Straight Out of Dodge City, and your stories, and all things uh, regular West and Weird West, uh, Old West, New West, Weird West. Um, so uh, once again, it's uh, it's out now in trade paperback and ebook. They're the two previous books in the series, um, Straight Out of Deadwood, uh, yes, yeah, Straight Out of Deadwood and Straight Out of Tombstone are also out. In those formats, and I believe I know Straight Out of Tombstone is in mass market. I Straight Out of Deadwood either is or will be shortly, um, so you can pick those up if you like what you see in them. Well, thank you so much for to my guests uh, David Boop and Jonathan Mayberry, Mercedes Lackey, and Joe Lansdale for coming on uh, and talking to us today. Thank you all so much. Well, thank you for thank having you, us. Thank we you. enjoyed Good being night. had. Right off to the sunset. <laughs> exactly. Happy trails. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. SLNS Quebec. Zung System. Solarian League. Well, sir, all I can say is that it's about friggin' time, Captain Gabriella Timberlake growled, standing at Admiral Vincent Capriotti's shoulder, as they gazed at the latest dispatch on Capriotti's display. The fact that the Zung system was just under 70 light years from Sol meant Task Force 783 had gotten the new general order sooner than most of the rest of the Solarian League Navy, and Capriotti wondered how the Navy's other flag officers were going to react to them. 
For that matter, he wasn't entirely certain how he felt about them. I can't say I disagree, Gabby, he said finally. On the other hand, if the stories about what happened to 11th Fleet and Admiral Crandall are anything to go by, this could get interesting. One way to put it, sir, Timberlake agreed. On the other hand, I think I like the thinking behind this. The bastards can't have those killer missile pods and their damn super dreadnoughts everywhere. They don't need to have them everywhere to ruin our whole day, Capriotti pointed out. They only have to have them wherever we turn up. I know, sir. The Admiral's flag captain shrugged. Sooner or later, though, we've got to take it to them. And given what they did to Admiral Filaretta, it looks like fleet engagements are going to be a really bad idea until our tech people can figure out how to match their damned missiles. Capriotti nodded soberly. The Solarian League did need to take it to the Mantis after the series of massive black eyes the Star Empire and its allies had handed the SLN. Despite any misgivings he might feel, he agreed with the captain about that. He just wished to hell he was more confident those in charge of the taking in question had at least a vague notion of what they were doing. He wasn't prepared to wholeheartedly accept the Solarian News Report's version of what had happened to Massimo Filaretta. According to the Mantis, 11th Fleet had opened fire after being summoned to surrender. According to the usually reliable sources, talking to the newsies speaking off the record because they weren't authorized to disclose classified information, Filaretta had accepted their surrender terms, then been blown out of space in an act of cold-blooded mass murder. And according to any official ONI analyses, no one in old Chicago could find his arse with both hands and approach radar well enough to give one Vincent Capriotti a single damned clue which of those diametrically opposed analyses the Navy shared. Not a good sign, he thought again. Of course, intelligence has been caught with its trousers around its ankles every step of the way this far. Maybe the real bad sign would be for the idiots to actually think they did know what happened. Vincent Capriotti was battle fleet from the ground up, and he'd known dozens, scores of men and women in the ships Crandall and Filaretta had lost. Like Timberlake, he wanted payback, and not just out of bloody-minded vengeance, although he was honest enough to admit that was a great deal of his motivation. In addition to that, however, he had a rather better idea than many of his battle fleet compatriots of just how critical the Office of Frontier Security's unofficial empire of client star systems truly was. And along with that, he recognized that OFS's arrangements were far more fragile than they might appear. The Solarian League literally couldn't afford what would happen to the federal government's cash flow if Frontier Security started shedding clients. And unless they demonstrated that they could stand up to the Mantis, that was precisely what was going to happen. On the other hand, the one thing of which Capriotti was certain was that if the battle or massacre or whatever of Manticore had been as short as both sets of reports suggested, he did not want to tangle with the sort of defenses Mantis seemed to think were appropriate for major star systems. Fortunately, judging from the synopsis of Operation Buccaneer, that wasn't what Admiral Kingsford had in mind. So maybe someone in old Chicago did have a clue what he was doing. Maybe. All right, he said finally, turning away from the dispatch to gaze at SLNS Quebec's main astrogation plot. I need to get Admiral Helland and Admiral Rutgers up to speed on this. I'm sure they'll both have useful input.
once Rutger stops warning us not to be overly optimistic, of course. His lips twitched, and Timberlake actually chuckled. Rear Admiral Liang Tao Rutgers, Task Force 783's operations officer, had started out in Frontier Fleet and transferred to Battle Fleet barely 20 years ago. That hadn't been long enough to completely free him of the basic Frontier Fleet attitude that Battle Fleet would have made an excellent paperweight, especially if that got it out of the way of the people doing the Navy's real work. Along the way, he'd been known to offer pithy analyses of just how out-of-date Battlefleet's strategic and tactical thinking might have become, and he'd argued strenuously that training simulations and fleet problems should be restructured to match the Navy against true peer competitors, despite the fact that everyone knew there were none in real life. When confronted with that fact, he'd suggested that it might be better to train against an opponent better than anyone might actually have to fight. At least that error was unlikely to get anyone killed. Not as his attitude had made evident that he'd expected anyone in Battlefleet to give much thought to that possibility. The flag captain was pretty sure that attitude explained why an officer of Rutgers' obvious competence, and with the Rutgers family's military and political connections, was still only a rear admiral. But it was rather refreshing in a lot of ways. Recent events had sure as hell validated his warnings, and she knew Capriotti both respected and genuinely appreciated his contrarian viewpoint. Vice Admiral Angelica Helland, TF-783's chief of staff on the other hand, reminded a lot of people of a smarter Sandra Crandall. Of course, she could hardly have been a stupider Sandra Crandall now that Timberlake thought about it. The contrast between her aggressive near arrogance and Rutger's voice of caution made for occasionally fractious staff meetings, but it also offered Capriotti a robust debate between differing viewpoints. That was something he'd valued even before anyone started shooting at the SLN, which had been rare, to say the least, among Battlefleet four-star admirals. At the moment, Helen and Rutgers were in transit back to Quebec from observing a training simulation aboard the battlecruiser Bavaria, the flagship of TG-783.12. Thanks to the classification level of the dispatch, they had no idea why they'd been summoned home so abruptly. Be interesting to watch their reactions, the flag captain thought. Just between you and me, I'm all in favor of our not being overly optimistic, sir, she said aloud, and Capriotti nodded. You and me both, he agreed. Please have me informed as soon as they come back aboard. In the meantime, I'm going to the flag briefing room. I want to go through this ammunition manifest, and I especially want to review ONI's most recent estimate of Manti missile capabilities. He shook his head, his expression turning grimmer, and Timberlake raised an eyebrow at him. I've only skimmed it so far, he said, but I'm inclined to think it's still over-optimistic, let's say. The flag captain's raised eyebrows segued into a slight frown. She too had skimmed the new estimate. There'd been no time to go through the analysis itself, but the conclusion section had been depressing. Intelligence's current metric gave the Mantis and their allies a three-to-one advantage in throw weight, a 30% advantage in penetration aids, and a maximum powered envelope of 30 million kilometers. That was more than enough to be going on with, in her opinion. I'm not saying Mantis are 10 meters tall, Gabby, Capriotti said wryly. And the new cataphracts can match any range they've got if we incorporate a ballistic phase. 
But you and I both know Liang Tao is right on the money when he says we totally underestimated what the Mantis could do to us. Shouldn't have taken a genius, or so damned long for O and I to realize that either, which says some pretty unfortunate things about our pre-war analysts. Since the shooting started, though, the Mantis have made Liang Tao's point for him painfully enough not even our brilliant masters can miss it. I'm delighted they've sent us these new missiles, and I understand that Technodynes tweaked their performance again. But until I've got something just a little more solid than our best guess about enemy capabilities from the same idiots who brought us Sandra Crandall and 11th Fleet, I'm not going to make any rash assumptions about miraculously level playing fields. Works for me, sir. Timberlake shook her head. Better we overestimate them than underestimate them. Fortunately, it sounds like someone back in old Chicago's figured that out too. Capriotti twitched his head at the dispatch they'd just finished viewing. I can't say I'm delighted at the notion of blowing up anyone's star systems. That's not what I joined the Navy to do, and I have friends living in Cachalot for that matter. But whoever came up with this idea, whether it was Admiral Bernard or Admiral Kingsford himself, I think it's the best one available to us at the moment. If we can cause enough pain to their peripheral star systems, or the independent star nations trading with them, they'll have to disperse at least some of their forces to commerce and infrastructure protection. And the more we can keep them dispersed, the more likely we are to encourage a certain circumspection on their part, until Technodyne finally figures out how to build a genuine multi-drive missile of our own. Timberlake nodded, although both of them understood the additional point Capriotti had chosen not to make. Operation Buccaneer wasn't just about forcing the Mantis and their allies to spread themselves thinner. In fact, that wasn't even what it was primarily about. Its real purpose was to warn anyone who might even think about signing up with the Mantis, whether as ally or simple trading partner, that the decision would be unwise that the SLN would consider that anyone who sided with Manticore had just sided against the Solarian League, and that the consequences would be dire enough to discourage anyone else from following her example. In fact, it was a terror campaign, directed against those unable to defend themselves. And if anyone might have missed that little point, TF-783's assigned target would make it abundantly clear. The Cachalot system, 50.6 LY from Tsung and only 49.6 LY from Beowulf was an independent system which had opted against joining the Solarian League when it was initially founded. It was also a prosperous, heavily populated system which had been a Beowulf trading partner for the better part of a thousand years and depended on the Beowulf System Defense Force to provide its rapid response security force. Its organic military forces consisted of no more than a couple of dozen frigates and lacs because no one would be insane enough to attack someone so closely associated with one of the League's founding and most powerful star systems. Until now, at least. She wondered just how explicitly Kingsford or Brenner, the CEO of Strategy and Planning, had admitted Buccaneers' true objectives in the detailed operational orders. And while she was wondering, she wondered how many of those independent and nominally independent star systems would recognize that the League was choosing to target them because it dared not attack the members of the Grand Alliance directly. Bit of a potential downside there, Gabby, my girl, she reflected, then shrugged mentally. 
Maybe that's another reason to pick Cashelot. It's close enough to Beowulf that systems farther out in the fringe may not realize how lightly defended it is. Even if they do, we've got to do something, though. And thank God no one is planning on sending us after one of the Manti's primary star systems, given how quick they smashed up Filaretta. Her thought trailed off, and she nodded again, more firmly. I just hope Technodyme, or somebody, gets its thumb out and moves right along with that multi-drive missile of yours, sir. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Special thanks to David F. Rod. Thanks, pard. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the coprolytic anti-chips for a hearty round of dinosaur poker, angelic petticoat-kicking ingenues, and thanks, praise, and gratitude for David Boop. Mercedes Lackey, Joe R. Lansdale, and Jonathan Mayberry, editor and authors of Straight Out of Dodge City. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars, pardon. <laughs>